about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way, it might be really good. Wow. Hello and welcome to It's Good Except It Sucks, a movie by movie and television series by television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time we're taking a look at The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, first seen in March 2021. When, if you wanted to look clever in front of your friends, you could have watched Pooch Perfect, The Mighty Ducks Game Changers or Overserved with Lisa Vanderpump instead. I'm Tim Worthington and we'll be finding out what I made of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier shortly. Meanwhile, joining us to give his thoughts on The Falcon and the Winter Soldier is writer Stephen O'Brien. Stephen, where can people find you? People can find me at a few blog posts I do at the moment. There's Meaningless Insights, which if you Google that, you'll find me. And I also run a Stock Aiken Mortimer blog called Keen Kantamatowski. And I'm currently working on one or two music projects in terms of books. Okay, so before we go any further, Stephen, what happens in The Falcon and the Winter Soldier? Where to a start? So much went on with The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So clearly, this series is a follow-on from Avengers Endgame. It's set six months after the blip, and it mainly focuses on The Falcon, played by Anthony Mackie, and Bucky Winter Soldier, played by Sebastian Stan. And it shows those two guys coming together, following Steve Rogers, giving up the mantle of Captain America. So part of it is around Sam grappling with the fact he's been given this legacy and his struggle as a black man to deal with that and also with Bucky's need to sort of deal with the fact that Steve Rogers is no longer there and to adjust to the 21st century and actually sort of almost repent for his past crimes and along the way they you know have a lot of difficulty with sort of dealing with the flag smashers. Okay well I'm not going to ask what you do about Sam and Bucky before you saw this because you did the episode on Captain America the Winter Soldier but Stephen how much did you do about John Walker before you saw this show? I knew Jack Squat about John Walker <laughs> to be honest with you. I thought it was a really interesting take on it and clearly it, it, you know, it's got the precedent in the comic books but clearly this idea that Captain America becomes this figurehead so you almost separate the superhero from Steve Rogers and it becomes a figurehead for America and the military and what's supposed to be good and clearly Steve Rogers is a tough act to follow you know when we get John Walker who is, is a very flawed character and I think that really adds to what transpires in the series. Yeah, I was really thrilled when I found out they were going to do him in it because the background to him is, I think he came in in the mid-80s and the idea was that, you know, they thought we've never had 
a kind of small R Republican superhero. You know, even the morally grey ones are generally, you would call them, I, mean, I don't know if you could call Cloak and Dagger and the Punisher left-leaning, but you know, that sort of thing, that kind of background. And they, they just thought, what would be the opposite of Steve Rogers? Well, it'd be a guy from the South who is from a wealthy background, has come up right through the ranks in the military, not being elevated to Captain America, is, as I say, Republican with the small R, so while he's not bigoted or anything, he tends to lean towards stereotypes. You know, he isn't prejudiced as such, but has what we call unconscious bias now. The interesting thing that they did with him, I mean, in the compilation comic that came out to accompany One Division, there's actually a story in it that's got a really interesting take on this, where, because he's ruled by his head rather than his heart, which is the other big difference with Steve Rogers. And in the comics, he's on the side of right, but say, for example, there's one, this Avengers strip that was in the One Division compilation. They're facing a supernatural threat, and he's been sent in to observe the Avengers. And a lot of it is about him thinking, well, they know what they're doing, fighting demons. How do I make sure that's all above board and I can file a proper report on it? And he's trying to reconcile those two things. And he's, you know, you get interesting things like he does basically approve of what the Punisher does, other than the fact he has not got military sanction to do it. And sometimes he tries to arrange that as well. I love that they brought him into it because he is a step away if this makes sense, from the heroics that there's been so far. I mean, even in things like Daredevil and Luke Cage, it has all been about heroism, and he's more about kind of pragmatism, what needs to be done in the face of a certain threat. And that really does clash with how Sam and Bucky approach things. I think what I found really interesting is, and I say I didn't have the experience of John Walker in the comic books, so kind of at the end of episode one, you had this guy who's in this slightly ill-fitting mask. You know, I thought, what the hell is this? (laughs) But then... And obviously, as we found out a bit more in the second episode, you sort of thought, well, he's a guy who's fought for his country. He's trying to do the right thing. He's kind of daunted by this challenge. But he kind of gives it his all and kind of plays it straight down the line, even though that was kind of slightly irritating to me as a viewer, as well as to Sam and Bucky. But what was interesting, as time went on, and he kind of realised that his albeit his superb fitness only took him so far and he started to feel the gap between himself and particularly Bucky as well as Sam. That kind of gap from where he was to where the Avengers are. And let's not forget, obviously Sam is a very strong individual, a very smart individual, but he has this suit. He still felt, I got the impression that John Walker felt I'm not as good as them. I'm good at fighting, but I'm still not quite good enough to be Captain America. And that kind of eats away at him. And obviously, as time goes on, you see this kind of the blurring of the lines. And from being like the company man and towing the line and trying to represent all that's good about the US military, you can see he starts to cut corners and go into the greys and, and the black areas of those kind of behaviours. I thought Wyatt Russell was absolutely brilliant because I think he balanced that cockiness and the vulnerability so well. Yeah, and obviously we're going to come back to the fact that they're clearly going to do more with him down the line because that was one of the big surprises of the series. But we should just talk quickly about what the basic storyline was. That Obviously, they team up with Sharon Carter to fight the Flag Smashers. Now, in the comics, Flag Smasher was one character who was... Carl Morgenthau and obviously becomes their leader, Carly Morgenthau in this, who I think was 
absolutely brilliant. Erin Kellyman, who played her, has been in a couple of things. Like, she was in Solo, the Star Wars film. Catelyn Moran's Raised by Wolves. She's so good in this at playing. I mean, I think there's a real thread in this about characters who are so wedded to an ideology that they don't realise. Or rather, they do realise when it's gone too far, but they can't back down. And she's so good at playing that that she realises her campaign to... Because basically, long story short, Flag Smasher in the comics was one of those classic Marvel things about somebody who's got a valid point and goes about it the wrong way, who believes that, you know, I have some sympathies with this, you know, ideas of patriotism and nationality and what's wrong with the world and what's causing conflicts, and he sets out to dismantle it sort of step by step, which means assassinations, which means that he's constantly fought by Captain America, the Punisher, Moonlight, Ghost Rider a lot of the time as well. They've turned it into this big movement related to Thanos' snap, where there were people who quite rightly thought that, you know, there was an elevated quality of life for poor people during that and they've just been shoved back and Carly starts this movement and it gets out of her control and the moment it gets out of her control I think is the key moment of the whole series which is when they're fighting against Sam, Bucky, John Walker and Lamar Hoskins who's John Walker's long time active service sidekick who's become I don't think they actually called him Battlestar in this he's Battlestar in the comics and I was just thinking at that point Based on the fact that, you know, this whole series came about, they said, because of the interaction between Sam and Bucky in the previous team-up movies, particularly in Civil War, when there's the, can you move your seat forward, no scene. You know, they, they have these incredible little moments, like when they're looking at the sky in Wakanda in Infinity War and so on, and that's why they thought that'd be great. And I was starting to think, Lamar is going to be great in that kind of role next time they do a team-up. And suddenly, the Flag Smashers, without realising they're actually going to kill him, kill him. And that leads into that amazing cliffhanger where John Walker corners and takes out one of them and is holding aloft a bloodstained Captain America shield while everyone's filming it on their phones. The way she acts in that scene is astonishing, just with her face alone, just observing what's going on. I thought that was fantastic. I would agree with what you say. I think she was an exceptionally naturalistic performer. I want to take a slight diversion here. Anyone would expect this in a Marvel podcast, but I think Jake Wood, who plays Max Branning in EastEnders, is an exceptionally naturalistic <laughs> actor. You know, his performance is so low-key that you can actually believe he's a real person, even though he's not. And I think I got this from Erin Kellerman. There was that naturalistic portrayal of this totally focused individual all along the way obviously things totally got out of control at that point but even as to facing the challenges she was so committed and there was no turning back it was like you know she was past the halfway point there was no turning back she was just continuing straight forward particularly like in that final episode where there was so much going on and she was still determined to achieve a mission despite what was going on and it is like I say the case that it's all about people who don't know when to let go of certain aspects of what they believe in. I mean, you've got the whole thing with Sam, Bucky and John. It's all about their differing attitude to Steve Rogers' legacy that they won't let go of and that they kind of go too far with it to their detriment. There's a Dora Milaje arrived from Wakanda to arrest Baron Zemo, who we've not mentioned yet, who <laughs> don't trust Sam and Bucky to deal with him. You know, they're letting their vengeance over what happened to their former king, T'Challa and Shuri's father, which is, you know, civil war is several years and the whole Infinity War in the past by that point, but they will not let that go. Sharon's obsessed with revenge for her perceived slight... A lot of that is maybe in a head and it seems to be a recurring thing and it gives you a bit more sympathy for the Flag Smashers because there's something uncomplicated about what they want, no matter how wrong it is. 
Yeah, I think that's really interesting because obviously in the final episode when Sam challenges the senator or the senators around kind of missing the point, why did these people, why did that girl go so far to fight against what they perceive to be an injustice? I'm minded of the old screenwriting adage which is you've got your goodies and you've got your baddies but the baddies think they're in the right. It's not just the goodies who think they're in the right, the baddies think they're in the right as well. So clearly, as you say, the flag smashers 100% believe their belief and their cause was 100% right but it was interesting for Sam to acknowledge to say why do you think these people have done this so the fact that Sam whilst not agreeing with them or the methods acknowledged there was some validity to their cause no matter how badly they portrayed it I thought was really interesting and the other really interesting thing they did in that direction was that it's a whole moral grey area that cliffhanger mentioned that John Walker's reaction to his friend being killed in the line of duty. In his mind, that is a war situation. But they didn't treat him as, you know, the pariah, the evil wrong man. It showed the humanity, it showed that his wife kind of thought he was right, that Lamar's family thought he was right. And later, in one of the amazing, he doesn't get pardoned by the military, but they go very easy on him because of his record. And then in one of several amazing surprises in this, I mean, nobody knew that Io was going to turn up from Wakanda or Don Cheadle had a cameo as Rhodey in the first episode, which nobody was expecting. That Julia Louis-Dreyfus turned up as Valentina Allegra de Fontaine, who basically says to John Walker, yeah, you did the right thing, I'm building this new, well, it's not quite clear what it is yet, you're on board. And I like that they presented that angle about it. I mean, for anyone who isn't familiar with her, she's a S.H.I.E.L.D. character going back to the original S.H.I.E.L.D. comics from the 60s, but also for a long time was when they used to have Marvel UK, which hasn't really been touched on in the MCU so far, which is a whole raft of different British characters like Captain Britain, Excalibur, a couple of others like that. Bross as well, who had their own comic. I never let people forget that. There was a Bross comic set in Marvel UK continuity. Death's Head, characters like that. She ran the British branch of S.H.I.E.L.D. But later on, they then went in different directions, should we say, to avoid spoiling anything that might be coming up. But obviously, we're going to be seeing more of her and more of John Walker in the future. But to have kept all those things a surprise is pretty good as well. Yeah, I was agree. There were some real surprises in the show. But going back to, there were some people like John Walker's wife, Lamar's family, who kind of felt John had done the right thing. You could argue that, obviously, he appeared before the senators and was kind of given a dishonourable pardon. But you do get the sense, as you suggest, that John Walker's only crime was to be filmed committing the murder. And there's the argument to say if he hadn't have been caught on camera, there wouldn't have been any repercussions for him, which again brings an interesting take on it and clearly a representation of our current society. It kind of harks back a little bit to some of the themes we discussed discussed when we did Captain America the Winter Soldier is that in this day and age in society you're always being monitored in some way or you can be monitored and clearly what brought John Walker down was the fact he was caught on camera. I did like the fact that prior to that, when John was talking with Lamar in what appeared to be like a train station or or a shopping mall or something, he posed the question to Lamar, if you could, would you take the serum? I think John had said something along the lines of, what do you think it would do? Lamar said, it makes you more of the person you are, which I thought was really interesting, actually, given John Walker's behaviour after that point. Yes, because although he does, well, what is interpretable as the most villainous thing in the whole story he's not framed as the villain at all in fact is anyone really framed as a villain because even the big returning villain baron zemo doesn't really do anything villainous they break him out of the raft which 
which obviously is the floating prison that played a big role in Captain America Civil War, and also in one series of Jessica Jones. So hello to anyone that's listening who's trying to claim those old TV shows aren't canon. You know, there's a direct tie-in there. But he doesn't really do anything particularly wrong. He thinks that, again, this is a reasonable, especially based on his backstory, position to take. He thinks that no, in effect, enhanced individual should exist. You know, there shouldn't be anyone with superpowers or super tech. And in some ways, it's kind of hard to argue with his position there. The most outrageous thing he does in the whole serial is a dance. <laughs> which is later released in kind of a parody of the Snyder Cut of Justice League that released a very long cut of that scene. I think the thing is, Zemo is always great value, isn't he? And I think Daniel Bruhl is just amazing, Zemo. And I think he was one of the highlights of this series for me. What was notable in this show, he had more of a comedic presence, which I really appreciated. But at the same time, it was still Zemo. And he always kind of just <laughs> waiting. What's he going to do next? When is he going to pick his moment and do something Zemo-esque? And clearly, obviously, <laughs> you know, there were a few moments like that, weren't there? Particularly where uh, tracking down the guy, you know, Nagel, who had the serum and obviously Zemo just kills Nagel just for, almost for the sake of it really so again that was very Zemo-esque and I just think I love that kind of chaos and unpredictability he brings to it even when he's very calm cracking aside and doing a dance and it was kind of as well about people trying to confront their past because I mean we've not really mentioned Sam and Bucky that much but they've got the whole thing of as you mentioned Bucky trying to atone for his past for his actions as the Winter Soldier at the same time as trying to somehow become a young single man in a century he doesn't recognise, which is a really interesting the way they go around that. There's a possible hint of a romance with Sam's sister, which isn't really gone into in much detail, but it's hinted at. Whereas Sam has to face a lot of, you know, he has put distance between himself and racism and prejudice by being an Avenger, by being away from it all for so long. When he returns home, he has to deal with all of the, well, I mean, it's not even outright, it's low level racism, like the bank treating his family differently because they're black. And also he has quite an amazing encounter with Isaiah Bradley, who hasn't really featured in the comics that much, but who was the black Captain America at, I think, the point in history that he was been shifted around quite a lot in continuity, but obviously in here, they have established a backstory for him, and it was interesting that he had previously been a black Captain America who was left with absolutely no trust of the authorities because of that. Yeah, and I found some of those scenes were really powerful, you know, that, that rage against the injustice and that mistrust, and almost, you know, he could see some of the things that Sam was grappling with and he was almost trying to sort of give Sam advice because I think he was scared that Sam would end up in a similar situation to the situation he Isaiah found himself in most notably where he said they will not accept a black America by which they I take to mean the American people and that was quite a compelling narrative in this storyline you know and it's not really an area you know I'm an expert in or very well placed to speak of but what was really interesting is obviously at one sense you know Sam has got the shield given to him by Steve 
with the kind of the unspoken message to say it's your turn now Sam but Sam was grappling with that and in one sense you sort of think well actually is that because the big shoes to fill but clearly as the narrative of the series carries on you really understand it's Sam's concern that he would not be accepted as a black man being Captain America and that was really fascinating that was one of the most interesting parts of this series for me yeah we should also mention the kind of troubled production history this had as well because obviously it's affected by the pandemic it was kind of filmed in i think they'd done a lot of it before the first lockdown started in america and the production team say we did the hardest work while we weren't able to actually film you know they did everything they could to try and get material together during that downtime and then when they were able to they filmed the outstanding sequences and one of the very strange byproducts of that is they have had to move around the release order of the other mcu properties are coming out and change them a bit i think it's been confirmed now the rumor was that valentina allegra de fontaine was originally going to be introduced in black widow i assume in the post credit scene that's now had to be changed because this ended up coming out first but it had a really really strange repercussion which i think sebastian stans talked about in interviews which is that this was all a long way ahead of a certain crybaby refusing to leave office and people storming the Capitol to try and keep him in office. You know, given the racial background to all of that nonsense as well and the racial overtones in this, that it accidentally ended up reflecting it. And a couple of people made the point that, you know, in that scenario, John Walker would have been one of the, technically would have been one of the police trying to defend, you know, the people in the Capitol, you know, just trying to go about their business or something being confronted by armed citizens. That puts a really interesting spin on the whole series that nobody making it anticipated. I think that's a really good point. And I read that similar point as well, where they felt that, you know, fiction kind of reflected the reality that took place in between. For what appears to be a straight-up action series, you know, I think there was various tones to the show. You know, that reflection in this series about, you know, some of the real themes, political, geopolitical, race that we as a society are really grappling with and to kind of see those portrayed through a a superhero lens almost makes those things a bit clearer to see and comprehend in this series and I think what was really interesting you've got Malcolm Spellman as the lead writer on this who previously worked on Empire is a black writer and obviously I understand that one of the reasons he won the pitch to be the lead writer on the show is that he kind of positioned this story with a real focus on race and again that made me think about the other people involved in the show as well because clearly you know we've got the writer of John Wick so you can sort of see how the collision of action and adventure and that real character issue based approach and I think they generally gel really well together but like you say I thought Anthony Mackie I've always rated Anthony Mackie but I think he really played that in a conflict around understanding the racial issues that he and other people of colour sometimes have to deal with, often have to deal with in modern day society against his desire to sort of take on Steve Rogers' faith in him and become the new Captain America. Which he does brilliantly at the end and he also gets Isaiah added to the Captain America exhibit which is a really powerful moment. But mentioning the people behind the show brings me round to a couple of things I loved about it and one thing I hated about the reaction to it which this is all a bit circuitous but basically 
The kind of nominal showrunner was Carrie Scogland, who directed The Punisher on Netflix, and put in an interesting nod to that in here, because the Flag Smashers are very upset by the fate of Donya Madani, who was someone who looked after them. Obviously, it's very clearly related to Dinah Madani, who's The Punisher's mole in Homeland Security, and please, 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 I really want Amber Rose Reaver to come back as her in the MCU. There's a couple of other things in there pointing towards the future, like Isaiah grandson Eli becomes Patriot and given that a couple of the other young Avengers are confirmed as coming up in upcoming things I think that's what they're going to do with him there's a mention of Madripoor obviously that's very closely associated with the X-Men but what really bothered me was okay I'm guessing people have seen this before they listen to this let's just say if you haven't don't listen to the next bit but obviously it turns out Sharon is the power broker but while that was in progress there were all kinds of speculations of the audience, all kinds of ridiculous theories, like a lot of people saying, OMG, I reckon that's the kingpin. Now, the kingpin wants to be the king of New York and fights Daredevil and Spider-Man and so on. That is the whole raison d'etre. Why would he want power in Eastern Europe? I do not understand what that... But then people were angry that that didn't happen. Now, I will admit for a minute that I thought, ah, I wonder if it's Doctor Doom, given the Fantastic Four are coming in, and it's set in the Eastern Bloc. Obviously, that didn't happen, but I didn't then get angry at the showrunners because my theory that I've made up in my own head based on nothing didn't come true. I think this is becoming a real problem these days with franchises with all the television in particular people are expecting it's like they want some level of creative control themselves and i find that quite disturbing yeah and i think it's again it's how you deal with that clearly you know the showrunners have decided how these stories will play out and there's obviously only and there's only room and the money for one retelling of it and clearly people will have their own views on that but you know again that's the deal isn't it you know you engage with somebody else's vision and somebody else's creativity and i think if you don't like that well obviously you can kind of you know have your say about it or not watch it at all but to sort of lambast people to say you haven't made the show the way i would have made it well that's a kind of almost a nonsense way of approaching it i mean what i would say is a general point really i really really enjoyed this series and i was sad it came to an end to be honest with you what was interesting for me is that there seems to be a lot of people not everybody because obviously it was well received but there was a lot of people who seemed to be almost disappointed in the falcon and the winter soldier on the back of one division now what was interesting for me is i didn't watch one division before i watched the falcon and the winter soldier so i kind of just went into it with fresh eyes although i can see if you just watch a really creative show like one division and then he lands with the falcon and the winter soldier it's going to seem almost pedestrian by comparison but i think that's a really unfair comparison because one division is the outlier show really although we haven't seen loki yet and i just think <laughs> the falcon and the winter soldier for me is more in line with the Marvel films we all know and love than WandaVision. But I think people were just expecting something totally left field after WandaVision. But the Falcon and the Winter Soldier has done what it did brilliantly. It's taken those two characters, it's put them in a story or, or in a setting which is fairly similar in line with the previous movies, but it brings so many different things in there around the ability to focus on Sam and Bucky and their challenges, to focus on things like race, to focus on things like, you know, where you've got like a left field group who are protesting against something and go to desperate ends to get the voice heard. Within all that, you had all the spectacle, you had brilliant special effects, you had some brilliant set pieces like the fight on top of the two trucks, the opening sequence, which was 
airborne you know i just thought there was some brilliant set pieces in this as well and i just felt that you know it was a really good mix between the character stuff and the action stuff absolutely and i would also say that you know a lot of people are critical of the fact that disney plus release things on a weekly episodic basis i love that i loved every friday thinking oh it's falcon the winter soldier today i can't wait to see what happens i much prefer that to and what do they call it now binge racing apparently oh, it is yeah. now which i don't know how that's different to binge watching but apparently it is but some critics had to go at the show actually on that basis said it made it a less satisfying experience i found it more satisfying because of that i'll be absolutely honest about that and you are right about it, it is a lot more in tune with you know the iron man side of things as opposed to big action movie and you know i grew up on action serials so at the same time as i love weirdness i have a lot of love for things like this and i think it worked really well on that basis and also you know people have got to consider it in the position of i mean one division is obviously going to tie in with the next doctor strange film and what if and other things involving the multiverses going forwards this i've been trying to think about it's obviously trying to tie in with there's a lot more kind of hardware based characters coming in particularly you know you've got sharon now presumably selling tech in the middle east there's a series coming up of moon knight who obviously is a kind of military level vigilante in the Middle East and the Punisher and his crew are reputedly coming back in that. That's obviously heading in that direction. And you know, there are other characters like the Hawkeye series will probably be in that vein, Armor Wars and so on. It's not something in isolation. And people are treating it a bit as though it is, which I think is a, given everything that's been previously and how it's all connected, that's a very strange attitude to take. You raised some really interesting points there. And I think, you know, as I understand it, these series are designed to not become necessarily long runners in their own right, but to almost set up stories for future films. You mentioned WandaVision there. There's obviously talk about a Captain America 4 on the back of the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, or as it ended, Captain America and the Winter Soldier. You know, and again, although they have said, while there are some rumours about Captain America 4, they believe there is some scope in a second run of Captain America and the Winter Soldier. I'd love a second series of it, but I appreciate that's not necessarily the model. I think going back to your point about people criticising it for being a weekly episodic show, that just shows, doesn't it, how far we as a viewing society have changed in the past four or five years, whereby even five years ago, maybe a bit longer, I guess, you know, the idea of being able to watch a whole run of a, a six, ten, 20 part series in one go was almost seen as madness but now that that's the new model isn't it and how quickly people have forgotten that you used to have to wait a week between <laughs> episodes or something but I'm like you I like the fact in this world where you can watch pretty much anything and you can watch it all in one go that you have some things where you've got to wait and you've actually got something to look forward to rather than just blast through 22 episodes or something across a weekend and then think, oh, what am I going to watch next? And then you can't decide because there's 100 shows. The fact that you've got something that's delivered each week and it becomes appointment television, whatever time you watch it, which I guess is one of the benefits of streaming. You know, I like that model. I like the fact you've got a week for the episode, for the story and what you just watch is kind of soak in rather than just blast straight into the next one. Okay, so there's only one thing left for me to ask now. Stephen, if you had the vibranium shield acquired through debatable means, what would you use it for? I think I'd use it to cut a subway foot long in half from six, <laughs> six metres away. And I'm sorry, that's the best I can do at nine o'clock at night. You won't get many people filming that on their mobile phones. 
<laughs> exactly, yeah. You know, I'll probably get a dishonourable discharge from Mosty Hill in Liverpool for that <laughs> one, but there you go. Stephen, thank you, and Excelsior. Thank you, Tim. Same to you. If you've enjoyed this, don't forget you can find more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org.